This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ. Righty, welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. Um, I'm sitting in a pretty darkened room, so are you, Anthony. I'm sort of inverted in a nice halo. Your silhouette, maybe a husk of your former self. How is Girona? Now you're back in Dublin. How's that transition been for you? Yeah, it's the classic task switch. I'm kind of all over the place chasing myself. The time zone got me a few times. I'm not sure if you've had this experience. Google Calendar. I use an app called Calendly, which if anyone doesn't use, it's brilliant. And people book slots in your diary. This is a really boring story to start the podcast, but it's worth it. Uh, <laughs> so you you book you book a slot in it, and it updates on Spanish time. And then I got home Irish time. It doesn't rechange. So basically, I've had a Tasmanian devil of a week where I'm constantly late for stuff, chasing myself, and in quite a frantic situation for the week. So that should lead to a frenetic, fast-paced podcast today. I'm hoping. Uh, I would imagine so because today's guest um, is. Chris Deluzio, um, and I can say that name properly now because little um, let you into a little secret. Sometimes we might just record an interview before we record an intro. That's mad, isn't it? That is completely breaking <laughs> any. That's breaking the fourth wall, and that is breaking all kind of rules of logic around words and order and chronology. But that is his name, Chris Deluzio. He is um, head designer at Specialized. He's worked for the brand for twenty twenty plus years. He was at Cannondale before that. He has brought you bikes such as the Roubaix with Future Shock with little springs on. He's done the most uh, recent Diverge, which has got front and rear suspension. That's a gravel bike. He worked on the Venge Vias. Um, he's done a lot of stuff with aluminium. He's almost the guy that bears no further introduction, so we should probably just jump in. But just before that, I just want to say, Anthony, have you had a haircut? Had a haircut. I've had a shave. I haven't ridden my specialized mountain bike which is in the attic and the only specialized i own in quite a long time but i am excited to see where this uh, product innovation has gone from chris and really what they can build when the brakes are totally off like i'm wondering what you could build with no budget with no uci constraints with no customers to satisfy can they build a batmobile of bikes that's what i want to know yeah i think you just build a car if you could <laughs> well let's jump in and find out So welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, uh, Chris. And now I'm going to have to ask you, because you and I have spoken before over email, which means I only ever read your name. I've never actually met you in person until today. So can you pronounce, and I can bring this back to the guys in the office as well, how to pronounce your surname? Delucio. Delucio. Boom, there you go. I was, no, right. was going to go with Delucio. Delucio. I, I was right all along. So Chris Delucio, ladies and gentlemen, um, Difficult to describe you, I would suggest, at Specialized, because I would think you've probably had a hand in most bicycles, particularly road bikes that people have known. Um, and you've been doing that for, what, since about 2000? And in that time, maybe I've you might be referred to as a product designer, other times a kind of idea creationist, you know, a specialist of road bikes. How do you define your role at a company that you've been in for 23 years? Well, it is difficult to describe um, because it changes every um, every time it needs to change based on what I happen to be doing at the time. So um, I do a lot of different things. I do a lot of prototyping, a lot of product creation. Yeah, a lot of ideas, problem solving, and also problem creating, right? You need to find a problem to be able to solve the problem. And then you know, the solving the problem is the fun part. You know, that's what we really live for. And then really, um, you know, being creative and tapping into everyone's expertise around here at Specialized um, to really make a, a great product in the end. So probably the most recent product that people will know you for is the Diverge STR, which is a gravel bike. And it's taken your Future Shock, which is your stem suspension system, and now it's done some suspension at the rear, which is kind of maybe what a lot of gravel bikes almost look like they're missing. What's been the reaction to that? Because it is a weird-looking system. I don't mean that to sound <laughs> to sound uh, uh, you know like a criticism, but it doesn't look like your average gravel bike or road bike. Well, no, and I uh, I think that we take that as a compliment because um, it is difficult to make new and exciting and different things look good. I mean, it's not. I'm not suggesting that it looks bad, but um, new things are um, are new and they take a little bit of getting used to. 
I remember back when we introduced the Future Shock, even inside the building, it was kind of laughed at, right? Because it was like, you know, that's never going to work. And then people ride it and they're like, wow, I really need that. It's a very similar, even inside the building with the STR. It's like, well, I don't really know if I need that. And then as soon as you ride it, you're like, okay, I need that too. So it's a perfect complement to the Future Shock. I'm really excited about this conversation, Chris. I had over on my podcast, uh, Rob Jatellis from Factor Bikes. Uh, we chatted recently, and I feel like this is going to be an extension of this conversation. I'm just fascinated about that process. You referenced the, the new gravel bike and the innovation around that. But where does it start? Because in my head, I'm even trying to contrast his design process from yours. Do you start by saying, okay, here's a problem. Now let me try and solve that problem. And then a number of other secondary problems emerge in the process of solving problem A. Or are you starting out with a vision and then you're almost trying to engineer to manifest that vision? Well, you know, if I could answer that question, I would be uh, way further along in my career um, because <laughs> it that that the question always changes and the answer always changes. And it's based on what you know up to that point. What you know up to that point is all about riding your bike and watch people riding their bikes. And that's how we, that's how we solve solutions. And that's how we find problems, right? As cyclists, we, we ride around problems that we don't even know we have, right? We're just so adaptive to what we happen to be riding at the time. That's why test riding is actually really hard to do because, you know, once around the block and you're already used to, this thing you're riding. Um, yeah. And so to be able to ride your bike and distill it down, distill every aspect of it and look for the problems and then understand that you, oh, now I see that person has the same kind of thing that they're dealing with and they don't even know. And then you don't find, look for a solution yet, but you're still trying to describe the problem to other people and build a language around that topic. Um, and in this case, it's, um, gravel suspension, right? And then understanding that, okay, something in suspension should happen in gravel because gravel is getting more extreme. It's not just bad pavement now. It's it's gravel and it's single track and things are getting bigger, right? That's just natural, just like mountain biking was, right? And so as we progress, we, we had all the same questions that you normally would in designing a suspension system. So we built a bunch of bikes that had your typical suspension system and they all worked great if you were going to be mountain biking, but not if you're going to gravel ride and gravel riding is, you know, you want a double diamond stiff frame, you get up out of the saddle and go and it goes with you. Right. So we wanted that aspect of it. We didn't want a bobbing energy sapping, um, heavy, system that we're going to ride around it would be fine but it's not the gravel experience that we want and so that led us down the road of simplify 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 to the point where you know we we understood future shock and the benefits of suspending the rider and suspending the rider is the lightest and most efficient way to have a system so you take a double diamond frame which is we know it's the lightest way to make a, a frame a bike and then you suspend the rider so you're not having to make up for a wheel that's flexible because of, uh, you know, all the pivots in the back and things like that. So, and that's, that is the solution and how we got there was three or four or maybe even more years of product development to get to that end result. The line is getting so blurred between what you need a mountain, a hardtail mountain bike for and a gravel bike for, and now when I need a gravel bike with suspension. And I'm wondering like what the internal conversations are like when you're deciding what product feature to roll out next. Because be totally honest with you, I when I seen the suspension on the gravel bike, my initial reaction was, I'm not sure if that's necessary. A lot of time, if I want to ride a trail that gnarly, I'll bring my hardtail mountain bike. But what I have often felt on the gravel bike is necessary is on a descent, a dropper post. And we haven't really seen them coming as standard on gravel bikes yet. Like, where's the trade-off when you guys are saying, okay, the next iteration, what's the problem we're trying to solve? Um, well, defining the rider is a great place to start. And um, you, you sound like you're uh, on the border between two bikes. And so when we talk about a gravel bike, we don't want to talk about that person that might choose their mountain bike sometimes. This is a gravel rider. This is what they do. And we want the best experience for them. So the STR is the pinnacle of that rider, right? They, 
they want the best. They understand that this uh, STR solution will help them go faster and be more in more control. And then when it gets more rough, they can just stand up and absorb the pumps. And the great thing about this system is you can put a dropper post and you have the exact same suspension. And it seems like knowing that rider is just so important because me coming from a road background, my hesitancy to choose a hardtail mountain bike over the gravel bike, even if I know the trail is going to be kind of rough, I still opt for the gravel bike because my inclination when there is a hill as a roadie is to drop it down a few gears, get out of the saddle and try and power up the hill Vanderpoel style. And you just don't want to give away that extra power with the front forks just feeling slushy all the way up. I guess that's a big motivation for not having the front suspension on the gravel bike. You just explained STR. You just explained it right there for me. Because when you get out of the saddle and you sprint up the hill, you're on a hardtail. You're on a bike that doesn't give anything away. You are squirting up that hill. Whereas on a, on a mountain bike full suspension, you would sit down and choose a smaller gear and pedal up it and get it yeah. done. Right. And yeah, that's exactly why future shock is awesome. Cause it doesn't take away. It doesn't Bob. And that's why the STR is great for that too. But just to pick up there, Chris, on what you were saying about knowing the rider. Um, so I've been doing bike testing for coming on, well, yeah, 10 years now. And I've seen quite a lot of changes, but probably not, you know, not nearly as many as, as you've seen. But I'd wager that most people haven't changed all that much. You know, human beings haven't changed particularly much um, over that time. Um, neither has kind of terrain. Is there a tendency to effectively, for want of a better phrase, over-engineer a bike based on the idea that it's going to be newer and better than the last one, when actually what we all need are relatively basic bikes. And currently, looking at gravel, for example, having a bike that can fit 2.1-inch tires in, which is a drop-bar bicycle, and can have enough you know, mounting points that you could go around the world twice with the kitchen sink, is just unnecessary for your average cyclist. And yet, we see, I see as a journalist, life cycle after life cycle, those things kind of increasing on bikes, almost, a cynic might say, just to differentiate them from the year before. But the reality is we don't really need it. What are your kind of thoughts around that? It's a, it's a good point, um, but uh, it is an incremental industry, right? And we tend to, um, in this case, fit the next tire size, and then you need a new bike for the next tire size, right? Gravel bikes are running mountain bike tires now, but a lot of that is one of those band-aids we talked about, right? You put on a bigger tires to have comfort. You don't put a bigger tire on always for traction. It's to take the bumps. Well, now we have a suspension system for those bumps and you can choose the tire you need. So we actually, most people in the building downsize their tire because they have suspension now and you choose the tire for the terrain you're riding and not the bumps you're on. But I don't necessarily agree that the, the terrain hasn't changed in your question. I think that if you look for certain, you know, mountain bikes, you would never even see something that we see these days. Um, even 10 years ago, it'd be crazy, right? And the rides that I do on my gravel bike, I used to do on my hardtail, right? And now that would be just overkill on a hardtail on most of the rides I do. It's just come so far, and what we expect as riders has come along with that with the terrain, right? We're the ones making the terrain, so you know we want more. We always want more. We hear about ketones in the pro peloton, but what are they? According to experts at HVMN, ketones are a natural source of fuel for your body. Studies show that ketones are 28% more efficient than glucose, making them a super efficient fuel source for your long rides and races. These benefits led HVMN to create Ketone IQ, which is a drinkable ketone designed to support energy, focus and endurance. It's developed alongside the US military and Ketone IQ is one of the most powerful ketone supplements on the market. It's designed to elevate your ketone levels for up to four hours, which is much longer than other products. Plus, it's caffeine-free, it's compliant with the World Anti-Doping Agency guidelines, and that's a major win for athletes. Ketone IQ shots are the best way to get your ketones on the go. What I love about them is they're portable and they fit so perfectly and neatly in my jersey pocket during a ride. So visit hvmn.com and use promo code CYCLIST at the checkout to save 20%. 
And to learn more about achieving your ultimate metabolic potential, subscribe to HVMN's podcast, Health Via Modern Nutrition, which is hosted by Dr. Lat Mansour. That's on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. So visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to save 20%. I often think we talk to people for our jobs, um, product designers, you know, someone that's running a company, someone that is literally fabricating frames. And there's a really varying level of, I perceive from a kind of layman's point of view, expertise. Whereas I imagine if you went to the car industry, everyone would be, you know, graduates, top notch in their field, mechanical engineers. If you're working on wheels, you're an aerodynamicist. You're not someone that came from marketing that now works in the wheel department. How do you kind of see the bike industry and how's it changed do you feel like it's a lot of people who are enthusiasts or does it have that formula one kind of cutting edge that you know big brands would have us believe i i do understand the 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 cottage size and the garage side of it and i really admire those builders and i just think the work they do is amazing and i love looking at all that stuff that is one side of cycling that is so awesome. It's just so people are so passionate about riding those bikes. And then at Specialized, we are, we are still those people. We are enthusiasts, we're passionate, but we also have a level of expertise and a professional uh, way of working where we have to make products that are perfect, right? They can't fail. We have to, we make more bikes and break them than a lot of companies make, period. That it's that level of detail that we need to have, and to have that level of detail and expertise, we need to be very professional and have the Formula One mentality of get it right the first time and get it get it right fast. So the way we prototype is top level. Um, I have visited and worked with Formula One teams as an example, and we are at that level for sure. How do those relationships with the World Tour teams? I, I can't believe you have three World Tour teams at the moment. Like I can only imagine the cost of having those three World Tour teams, Bora, Quickstep, and Direct Energy. But how does that relationship with the World Tour teams inform product design? It has a huge impact on our product design. It has since we got involved at the at such a high level with the Pro Tour teams, our product has elevated to the point where it is now, at least road. Our mountain bikes have always been, you know, exceptional. But back when we first started making Tarmacs, we were like, yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good bike. But now they're unbelievable. And it's due to the the pressure of having the best riders in the world, you know, demand the best bike. Does anyone jump out on the World Tour riders that's particularly vocal in his feedback? You know, you've been working with Peter Sagan for three world titles and basically every one day race worth winning for over a decade yes there's quite a few and um i wouldn't like to name names because it would leave too many out but all most riders have certain things they need and um and then there's there's other riders that they just want the tool and if they're the people the technical people on their teams say this is the best and this is what you should ride then they're completely happy riding it it's it's the technical equipment managers on those teams that talk to those riders and convey to us. And then we still work with the riders, but they're, they're the ones who really um, bring the focus of a whole team to the product. If you sort of like look through internet forums around, say like a race like Roubaix, where you know, traditionally you see bike brands bringing out that Roubaix bike, which will have something kind of a bit extra special a lot of the time. It's, it's been suspension over the years. And I think it's true to say that you guys um, released a bike with a future shock around Roubaix that at the time I think Sagan would be riding and the conjecture was he hasn't actually got the future shock in it he's got a grommet over the top of some spaces because it needs to look like the future shock because that's what specializes marketing but he apparently says some insider from the team isn't happy with having a bike with suspension he wants it to be rigid a in that one example is there truth to that and b by extension, are there times when you develop something that you know is really good and then you give it to pro riders and they sort of just dismiss it out of hand? Um, well, the, the Future Shock, as an example, um, 
we developed that for the for Roubaix and the Roubaix riders demand it um, and they use it on their training bikes. So they're not trying to get rid of it. You know, we, we develop special dampers for them. The future shock that the public gets now has a lockout because the pro tour riders demanded it. Um, so it is driven by them and they love it. Like I said, they, they want to ride it more. Um, their tarmac is generally better over most of the courses they ride. So they choose that most of the time. But again, most of them have Roubaix as home training bikes. What's the thinking with the, the three World Tour teams? Is it marketing driven decision or is it a research and development led decision? From our side, it's research and development. You know, we get something different from each team. And I'm, I'm sure there's a marketing angle to it. And over that course of that partnership, which again, you know, you've been in this business for a long, long time. What have been the things that we've seen as consumers go into your bikes because you're working with a World Tour team? What's been suggested at a World Tour level where you've gone, oh, wow, yeah, didn't know that was a problem that needed solving, but let's go and solve it. And now it looks like this bike over here. I would have to dig through the archives to find something that we weren't already onto that the riders said we need. Um, because a rider isn't generally, in most cases, going to say something we haven't heard because they try it and say, I want more or I want less of that thing. And then we just turn the dials on whatever product we're making for them. The vocabulary is quite difficult to, like if somebody asks me to, what's the difference between you know, my old road bike and my new road bike. The vocabulary is difficult to explain what the difference is between the two of those to a non-engineer. Even for, you know, someone that's hosting a podcast, my background is law, my whole life's been about the spoken word. To have the nuances in the vocabulary to describe the difference, you can use words like vertical compliance, horizontal stiffness, but words aren't enough to capture the feeling of how it's different. Is that a challenge? Historically, cyclists aren't, super well educated a lot of them drop out of school quite early to pursue a career in high level sport is it difficult to bridge that gap from what they feel to implementing that into actionable changes it's it's never easy but the 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 best way to communicate with a rider is riding with them when they ride their bike and say when i do this i don't like it and then you watch what they do and then the words they say are secondary to their actions on their bike and how they move on the bike and how they react to what it's doing, you can see over you know the years of riding and watching people ride, you can see what's happening, then turn the conversation and maybe give them some new language to, um, to put to their actions. And, and that, that takes a long time. That can take a year to get a good conversation to, to an end point. Um, but that is how you find out it is to uh, laterally stiff and not vertically compliant enough or that a, a wheel is too harsh and not too stiff. Right. And then it's that there is a language and language is required, but also um, how a bike is ridden, is, it overrides those things. So is there a benefit for you for the multi-year contracts for riders? Because if you start to develop this relationship where a rider has fine-tuned this vocabulary, you don't want to see them going and riding a canyon the year after. Yes, it's very painful to see uh, a lot of talent uh, go to other teams. At the same time, I really enjoy when a rider comes from a different team and we can kind of download what they learned from another brand or from another team. Because every, every brand has um, and every engineer has, has a different theory and a different strategy on either it's aerodynamics or compliance or stiffness or even how to construct a frame. Right. We all have our paths that we've chosen. And interestingly enough, <clears throat> we all end up in about the same spot. Right. It's like, you know, we were talking about Formula One. It's a lot like Formula One where everyone's got a different aerodynamic philosophy, but they all end up with almost the exact same lap time. It's a very similar thing. I do definitely agree with that to a point with Formula One, but I'm often struck by the the comparison with with cycling and to, you know the world to Tour de France being the pinnacle of bike racing and that being the Formula One of cycling, and then you think, but it can't be because I couldn't drive a Formula One car. I couldn't get in one and drive one. It would just spit me out its back end, or I'd stall it. I'd, I'd blow up the engine within seconds. It is not for me. Whereas I can get on a pro bike in essence and ride it if it's the right size. So therefore, you might extrapolate from that and say me 
being not very good at cycling is bringing down what the professionals have to use because the professionals have to use the bikes that you're selling to the likes of the amateur. Is that fair to say? Or more to the point, I guess it's more nuanced, but to what degree is that true? And where would bikes be if you didn't have to make them for people like me and Anthony? I don't think the bikes would change. I don't think that there was a lot in that question or that statement. So I think we use Formula One out of place. It's the pinnacle of a thing that has a lot of engineering. And so we always point to it as, you know, an aspiration. I do think that it it falls short because it's not uh, the only thing you can do with a Formula One car is drive it on a Formula One track, right? It's done after that. And a bicycle is a bicycle for everyone. And so back to who the bikes are for, a high-performing athlete might use less of the bike than someone like you or I, right? Because they are fit athletes. All they do is ride their bikes. They know how to take care of them. They probably even have someone take care of them for them. They, you know, ride four or five hours a day or more, and they have so much finesse on their bike, and they can just, you know, they ride it like so gently but so aggressively. And then you and I might get on it and, you know, be hitting potholes and not be the smoothest shifters and, and maybe we're a little overweight. And so we put more stress in it than a, you know, a fit elite athlete. So does that kind of make sense? When, when we engineer for a pro tour rider, we all benefit and we all can um, enjoy that bike. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely makes sense. It's just that, that feeling of, but if you just didn't have to make it for you know, for the layman, for the average person, what would you be doing with bikes? Like how much more radical might they be? Like you say, you've got considerations such as weight, flexibility, the ability to just kind of like put up with fatigue and discomfort. And I think, you know, I, I cast my mind back to the uh, Venge Vias that you guys used to make. So one of the generations of the Venge, the one with the gullwing bars that looked so incredibly aggressive and I rode and was very very stiff and just really not for me but in my head I'm like but wouldn't that really be the best bike for the pro racers and maybe Specialized might have had to detune it the next year so that they could get more out of the door in the shop because it's not that suitable for amateur. Yeah I think that the the Venge was maybe a step too far but it's certainly cutting edge and a little too much even for pro tour right? It, it was a little too harsh and a little too heavy, all those, all those things, the reasons that, you know, we make better ones the next year. I think an interesting way to take that point, James, is if there wasn't a commercial reality to having to engineer these bikes. I know when I chatted with Rob from Factor, his background before founding Factor, he was operating some of these huge factories in Thailand to wear white label and a lot of frames to go out to big brands. And one of his frustrations with dealing with the heads of brands was they had so much emphasis on the cost per unit they could make profit and not as much emphasis on creating the next Concorde, not as much emphasis on pushing engineering to the nth degree. How much does that commercial reality of saying, okay, here's the profit margin we need to achieve on each unit, how much does that weigh into the engineering decisions? From my side, zero. I have nothing to do with how much a bike costs, which is great. I'm pretty far ahead of any, any production timelines and things like that. As the bike goes towards, you know, being a production reality, more engineers get involved and product management more, more get involved. And we, we rarely do anything that um, they can't figure out how to do in a cost-effective way. We don't spend more for pro tour bikes. They're the same exact bikes. And I think that's that's pretty amazing. Do you think we're going to see a resurgence in aluminium? I know when I look at my weekend group ride, everyone's talking about gravel bikes. And when I look at the level most of these guys are at, and not in a derogatory sense, but just in terms of evolution of where they are at as bike riders, most of them have come into the sport in the last three to five years. They're not very advanced bike handlers Gravel obviously has a lot more of a technical component to it than road cycling. Crashes are more prevalent, even for experienced riders. I'm wondering, is aluminium and some of the smart well technology you've been doing, I wonder, is it a more durable 
entry-level bike for gravel? Uh, I think if you really uh, plan on crashing and um, that's going to be part of your part of your daily routine, then aluminum is probably good. Uh, <laughs> the the gravel bikes we make are extremely durable. There is a lot of carbon where there needs to be. Um, they're not meant to be crashed, but they crash just fine. And gravel is actually a little bit lower speed than road. Right on a road bike, when you go down, there's a lot of hard, a lot of hard things for your bike to hit. Yeah, you almost never crash easy on the road. Right. <laughs> Every crash is a bad one. Yeah. And on, and on gravel, right, you you lose the front and you're kind of like, you scrape your knee in your hand or something. It's not that bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm struck by one of my friends who's a beginner in gravel cycling. And he's he's actually on a specialized aluminum bike. And I've been out on spins with him where he's, he's sacked it like six, seven times in a single spin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, if he had a carbon bike, this would be an expensive hobby. Yeah, I don't know how much I'd be riding with him, but maybe he needs a lesson or two. But I, I do I do think that aluminum is a great material and a, a great entry-level platform for riders to, to experience it, especially if it's going to be, you know, their, their first bike. And make it, you know, in all seriousness as well, as much as... Yeah, you can you can go out and you can stack your aluminium bike, and also, yeah, as you say, you can cut. It's a good entry level um, product in terms of price. Is there another component to not necessarily aluminium per se, but an alternative to carbon? Thinking about where we're at um, with the environment and considering our environmental impact, and considering you know the impact of large companies such as Specialized making lots of things in carbon fiber. To speak to um, Anthony's point, Anthony's you know chatting to. Rob Jatellis, and I remember having a chat with him and him saying, we have somebody that comes around to our factory um, in Taiwan and they take our old carbon from the prototypes and the things that don't work out and they chip it up and they mix it into concrete and they make kind of reinforced concrete with carbon fiber, which is kind of laudable, but then you think that concrete and that carbon fiber are not going anywhere. Whereas, so they say a third of all of the world's aluminium is in, you know, kind of is out of the ground is being recycled at any one time. And you can do that with aluminium. You can't do that with carbon. What's kind of specialized long-term view on, you know, its contribution, its its carbon footprint from the bikes it makes? I'm not versed at all in that subject. Um, I'd be talking out of place um, and it would be a, a personal opinion. I know that we do have groups of people that work on sustainability and certainly at our factories, there's a lot of work being done in that in that subject uh, yeah i know on on that james i chatted to josh from silka and he was working on some of that stuff as well and he's managed to recycle carbon frames but the best he can recycle it into at the moment is sealants for inside tires that's like the best use for it at the moment so it's definitely not very advanced but just to, to take a little bit of a left turn for a second chris i'm fascinated with aerodynamics and just how fast can you push a, a bike and propel it through the air what sort of aero testing is going into these machines because there seems to be two schools of thought on going to the wind tunnel. You see companies like you and the bigger brands, they're going into the wind tunnel with an eye to make conscious improvements. But I see smaller companies and they're going to the wind tunnel basically for photo ops because their bike is there, totally finished, painted up, ready to go, production ready, and it's gone into the wind tunnel. You're like, well, how are you making changes to that? Like it's already production ready. It's impossible. This is a photo shoot, not an aero testing session. Yeah, I, I see that too. And well, we're super spoiled because we have our own wind tunnel. Um, so we can do anything we want in there and not tell anyone or tell everyone. Um, and that's basically what happens. We do, it thing runs all the time. We have athletes in there all the time. Um, we do non-bicycle stuff um, for companies. It's very busy building. Um, and, you know, we're never done with product development and how fast can you push a bike through it? We'll just have to wait and see, you know, what ideas um, are around the corner? You have data on the most recent iteration of the Evade helmets and stuff like that. I've heard they're some of the fastest in the peloton at the moment. Uh, I've seen it, but it's I don't own it, so I can't talk about it. <laughs> I was gonna gonna mention yeah, with on the, the aerodynamics front. A couple of years ago, you guys got rid of one of your most groundbreaking platforms with Fenge. You kind of you put that on seemingly permanent hiatus. Is that just because 
well, you can't go any faster with the tarmac until it reaches a confluence with the Venge and just becomes that bike anyway? Or was there some other kind of decision behind saying, we don't have an aero road bike anymore, in a way where Canyon, for example, are very much banging their note. Aero still very much counts. We have a specific aero platform, and here's what we're doing with it this year. Yeah, well, the the tarmac needed to progress to be more of an all-around race bike to the point where it needs aerodynamics and lightweight and all the other performances that come along with a road race bike. Um, And those two converged to the point where we could make a faster bench, but not fast enough to validate the extra weight needed. And that, that makes that bike obsolete to anyone who wants to race because weight is important and there's a lot that goes into it. And the tarmac is the fastest race bike we can make now. So if weight is important, how many riders have come to you and said, Chris, dude, you made the Athos. I want the Athos. I know the Athos was launched. Lots of listeners might kind of uh, be aware of this. On the on the strap line, you know, that the bikes that the pros can't race, they're illegal, they're too light. But in essence, they're only too light because of the components put on them. Obviously, the frame is incredibly light, but you could make that bike 6.8 kilos if you wanted. What is the reason not to put an Athos into the world to a mix? Well, once you have that 6.8, you're going to ride a tarmac because it's faster, right? You don't gain anything from an Athos if you have to add weight to it with other components. That makes sense, but it does lead me on to another question, which is, is there an area in a bike frame where you can kind of sacrifice or compromise on a bit of weight because of where it is, or is that just a fallacy? So the idea that heavy tires are bad because heavy tires mean mass concentrated um, tangentially as your wheels are spinning, which we assume is bad because it, you can feel a heavy tire when you're accelerating, right? It does, it does seem to drag a little bit, whereas maybe weight in a bottom bracket of a bike is kind of okay because it's going to help your stability or center of gravity. You know, the extension of that is does how much does frame weight really matter past a point or does it actually matter because weight matters because of where it's concentrated? Well, weight matters and it matters where it's concentrated to a point. Um, there's no extra weight in a tarmac or any bike that we make. Um, when you talk about mass distribution in a bike then that's more like a mountain bike where you're going to choose to to put the shock or how low the bottles can go you know we do concentrate on that on that kind of thing but as far as the frame goes they can't be too light because then you can if you have a weight limit then you can choose a wheel that's more aerodynamic or have your power meter and extra stuff on there um, that's not going to be a penalty but there's Trust me, there's not an extra gram in any bike we make. I know it. <laughs> Taking again the, the the boundaries that you pushed with weight, and I know that in the industry, um, industry people like yourselves, designers will sit on committees with people, say for the UCI, people designing rule books, people designing what's safe to race as well as to manufacture. What do you know about the future there? Because I'm assuming that you're in these conversations. And for example... Are we finally going to see, do you think, that hallowed drop in the rules for for weight to go down from 6.8 to something else in the way that we saw tube shapes finally relax from the three-to-run ratio? And that's kind of changed a lot of the aero designs all over again. I don't know the current thinking on the weight. I don't uh, see anything in the future that would say it's going to be lighter. Personally, I'm fine with the 6.8. Well, I'm not really fine with the weight. I think it's good for the industry. It's good for um, it's good for safety. No one's pushing crazy, maybe not so safe things. Um, that, that not all companies test to the same level that they need to. And yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to see something that's not safe out there. And then if if we didn't have the six point eight, for instance, we might not have disc brakes, and that has it's all for the better. Disc brakes are awesome and everyone needs to have. And if, and without that, like I said, we probably wouldn't have disc brakes because every, you know, rim brakes are lighter. Um, and then you have all the problems that go along with rim brakes. Is the UCI, do they pose a little bit of frustration? I know as a rider, at times you're looking at them going, it's just so frustrating. They legislate on stuff like the super tuck. 
yet they fail to legislate on blatantly unsafe downhill sprints like we see in McGrunewagen and Jakobsen in the Tour of Poland. We see him, you know, barrier legs and the tour of Valencia sticking out last week again, which is just horrific to watch as a spectator and worse if you're a rider. Do you have those same frustrations as an engineer when you're looking at their rules and the constraints they impose upon you and say, this is tokenism, this makes no sense. Why is this a rule? Um, well, luckily I can separate those two UCI groups. One is the sporting group and one is the technical group. And we get to work on my team with the technical group and they're extremely forward and communicative and easy to work with. They weren't always that way. They are now. And they rarely surprise us with anything. And all you have to do is be open with your communication with them and your ideas. And um, it's pretty, it's a pretty simple way of working. And when there was a shakeup in, in what they were going to allow the frame shapes to be, they basically said, what do you want? And then we were like, oh, okay, we can do anything we want. And we looked at her and said, well, you know what? We're pretty damn close to the way we are. So we didn't really want that many changes because the bikes would suffer if they went drastically skinny, right? No one would ride the bike. It would just be unrideable. So we're really close already. And I, I don't really think there's even anything on the table that we would want right now from the UCI as far as a frame shape change. Now, when you start to talk about rider TT position and things like that, that's a, that's a completely different story. I was going to say that doing away with, say, the seat tube that we once upon a time saw with, I don't know, Trek's kind of like wireframe, some of the zip runs, but then crucially, what seemed to be one of the fastest bikes ever made coming along in the early 90s and then disappearing later on, the Lotus sport bikes. Would there not be something there with that type of frame design and something that now, presumably those bikes were horribly stiff to ride unless you're riding them on the track, but now with composite engineering, you could take that shape and you could give it some compliance and it would be incredibly aerodynamically efficient. Would that not be a frame shape and a bike that you'd be pursuing, trying to make? No, I can't imagine that would be more efficient than what we're doing now. Um, And that would point to the the best triathlete bikes out there that don't have any rules right and they need to be as aerodynamic as possible that's uh and we did a lot of research for our our ship tri bike um in that regard so yeah they they look cool at the time um it would be interesting to see how how fast they are absolutely and finally chris i'm sure that you're a man with a lot of bikes in a couple of massive garages at home if there's a fire and you can save one, which are you running in to go and grab? And I'd like you to cast your mind back because I bet you've got some pretty special ones from over the years, not just you know the latest and greatest carbon things. Oof. That is a really difficult question. That's why I keep most of my bikes at work. It's more safe here than my house. But let's see. So my favorite bike is probably... Um, the one I ride the most is my Roubaix. Um, the last the current gen Roubaix is just what I ride the most because I ride um, almost exclusively road. If I don't, um, I'm mostly on my gravel bike these days, my Diverge SCR. Um, but yeah, that would be the one. Chris is really, really interested in listening to the evolution of probably the biggest brand in our sport. And thank you for being a, a driving force behind that. Really excited to see what your teams deliver this year and where you guys go with product innovation over the coming years. Thanks for joining us on Cyclist Magazine Podcast. Yep. Thanks for having me on. James, are you inspired to buy yourself a new Specialized for Christmas? I know you've just bought a house at a time and probably isn't brilliant given the price point on them. But Well, I don't know. Some people might say that a Specialized doesn't cost that much less than a house. Um, bikes are fearfully expensive. But no, I'm insp- I've always had a soft spot for Specialized. I had a Specialized um, hardtail mountain bike. First proper mountain bike when I was a nipper. First proper full susser as a Specialized. And just purely with my kind of like bike testing hat on, I'm I'm happy to throw it out there. The tarmac is probably like the best all round kind of ma- mainstream, very high end, obviously, but like from the big brands, bicycle going. There are similar ones of a similar level, but I often feel with that bike, you're not getting any, and it's the same with all of those, you know, BMC team machine, Cannondale Super Six. You are getting to that point, and I feel for Chris 
where bikes are just so insanely good. You're like, where, where they can't go anywhere. They're as aero as they can possibly be. The wheels can only get so big. Yeah, okay, you can have a few grams shaved here and there. But, I mean, what are we going to do next? Like, literally, where is there to go? I reckon that probably keeps Chris up at night. But he, d- he wasn't biting, was he, on the frame change shape? Didn't seem to want to go for that. I would, I would. No, he wasn't. And he was a little bit guarded. I suppose it's the nature of it being such a big company where he probably doesn't have an insight into margins and stuff. But I wanted to dig into, like, and James, you can probably speak to this because I haven't ridden all these top-end bikes but you're looking at specialized in Ireland at about a 14,000 euro price tag. And that's roughly 4,000 more than some of their competitors with similar spec bikes. Can you feel that difference when you're riding them? Is there 4,000 extra, you know, values uh, seems a bit of a pretty contrite word to use here, but if there are 4,000 extra difference between the two? Um, I mean, I'd throw that back to you and say, is there um, is a bike that's 10 grand twice as good as a bike that's five grand? And honestly, the thing is, there is a difference. The difference is, you know, it's diminishing returns and how much that difference is worth is going to differ from person to person. And I'm definitely evading answering this subject directly. But what <laughs> I would say is the thing with the bike, and this is something that I find very difficult trying to communicate as a bike tester is, to a degree, whatever bike you have, you're going to love because you've only got that one thing to compare it to. And even if you bought that bike to replace another bike, the chances are you no longer have the old bike. So you don't have a, you're not going to ride one on Monday, one on Tuesday, and then work out which one's better. And even if you could, probably the new one's better because you waited a few years. And one thing that is changing and definitely does get way better are components. Like wheels have just never been better. They've never been lighter, never been more aero and drivetrains and shifting. Stronger. I remember you used to hit a pothole on a like a thousand euro set of wheels and you'd be pretty sure the wheel was cracked. Yeah, exactly, man. And so this is an interesting thing. But years ago, uh, a couple of years ago on this podcast, he spoke to Tom Ritchie and he was talking about, so Tom Ritchie of Ritchie Bikes, he was one of the early pioneers um, of mountain bike frames, making them in Marin County. And he started with a bunch of mates, and this guy, Jobs Brandt, who was a kind of American half German guy. They started riding off-road and they were riding road bikes off-road and they would routinely snap spokes, but that would be fine. But what they also used to be able to do is get big tires into the frames. And the reason why you could snap a spoke on an old bike and the reason why you can get a a tire into an old bike is because wheels were so kind of pretty bad back in the day that you had to make a frame that had a big enough clearance that if you did snap a spoke, your wheel could then go out of true and you could carry on riding that race and the, you know so these are proper race bikes whereas now you look at a race bike it's got really tight clearances once upon a time they had really wide clearances just because wheels are so crap <laughs> they had to accommodate them potentially braking so yeah Interesting. i definitely speak to yeah wheels getting better group sets getting better but it's it's yeah it's a hard one that's another question is another question for the podcast are bicycles too expensive and, and something we touched on there was that frustration and grammar and that's why i was going to ask you that question was are they too expensive because to try and articulate the difference between the 10,000 euro bike and the 14,000 euro bike, it's very difficult. And it reminds me of when I posed the question to Chris as he was answering, and it wasn't appropriate to bring it back up because the conversation was going to move sideways. But it reminds me of almost wine. When you talk to a friend who's a sommelier and the way they talk about wine, it's an exclusionary vocabulary which gives very little insight to somebody who doesn't understand the vocabulary as to what the taste tastes like. And I know some of the big wine channels and wine magazines that popularized wine reviews, they changed the vocabulary a little bit, the non-snobby ones, to the aftertaste is like your grandma's smelly sock. It smells like, you know, if you leave flowers in a vase for four days too long. You know, they they brought back the grammar to something we could all relate to. And I'm wondering, does cycling need that? Because the grammar for me, as someone who's been riding a bike all my life and you know, deeply involved in it for over a decade. I still don't know the difference. If you explain to me the difference between a Factor Ostro and the Specialized Tarmac, I, I can't tell the difference with those words. They don't make sense. To me. Yeah, but that's that's a difficult thing. That's the difference between wine, I'd suggest, where wine is a smell. We can all smell things. We've all smelt some things and not others. So if you can point to the things we, you smelt, then you can make more sense of that wine. And so then it's up to you as the wine describer to choose things that are accessible. Whereas things around bicycles are to do with it's to do with science it's to do with physics it's to do with mechanical engineering composites engineering and those things we, we don't want you talking about things you've ridden 
we're obviously talking about horses absolutely there. but but the point the point is you know you're trying to describe scientific concepts to people that aren't necessarily scientific sort of people it's like trying to explain math to a horse sort of thing and i'm not saying that <laughs> <laughs> but and i am the, and i'm saying that being the horse because i'm talking to people like chris Deluzio, asking him questions about how bikes work and he's explaining to me in what is there's no better language really that he than he is using but i just don't possess the kind of basic principles to understand and unlock a lot of it. So point being, it is very difficult to describe a bike because you're trying to use sort of technical terms. And also, honestly, there's a lot of people using technical terms. And again, hold my hand up. And they probably don't necessarily understand them. And that is across the industry because there is this kind of enthusiasts um, side of cycling, which is mixed with the wannabe expert. And then those two things go together. And the classic one is a monocoque frame so a monocoque frame is widely understood by people to mean something like um for monocoque frame i would say it won't fit in your bike box it won't fit in your bike box. my description yeah. but the point so a monocoque frame as in like a frame made in one piece that's just a one piece frame so you can't take it apart it's just a one piece frame but all bicycle frames are monocoque because a monocoque structure is something that's kind of exoskeleton so the outside of it is the bit that bears the stress. We're not monocoque structures because our bones bear the stress, not our skin. So all bicycles are monocoque. That's just what a bicycle design is. But it's been appropriated and, and it's used for one-piece design. So like the Chris Boardman Lotus we are talking about, that would be a monocoque bike. It's stamped out of one massive bike-shaped mold and it's made of carbon. And that's true, but it doesn't mean that my steel frame isn't also monocoque. So it's that kind of thing. You get these like blurred lines... And then you start talking about things like vertical compliance and something being 10% stiffer um, at the bottom bracket. And you're like, what does that mean? Is it red? That's the question. Is it red and does it look cool? I kind of lost it here in this conversation when you talked about explaining mats to a horse. So I think we'll leave it there for this week, James. <laughs> Marvellous. Well, Anthony, it's been a pleasure and uh, I shall see you again in another fortnight. Talk soon. We hear about ketones in the pro peloton, but what are they? According to experts at HVMN, ketones are a natural source of fuel for your body. Studies show that ketones are 28% more efficient than glucose, making them a super efficient fuel source for your long rides and races. These benefits led HVMN to create Ketone IQ, which is a drinkable ketone designed to support energy, focus, and endurance. It's developed alongside the US military, and Ketone IQ is one of the most powerful ketone supplements on the market. It's designed to elevate your ketone levels for up to four hours, which is much longer than other products. Plus, it's caffeine-free, it's compliant with the World Anti-Doping Agency guidelines, and that's a major win for athletes. Ketone IQ shots are the best way to get your ketones on the go. What I love about them is they're portable, and they fit so perfectly and neatly in my jersey pocket during a ride. So visit hvmn.com and use promo code CYCLIST at the checkout to save 20%. And to learn more about achieving your ultimate metabolic potential, subscribe to HVMN's podcast, Health Via Modern Nutrition, which is hosted by Dr. Lat Mansour. That's on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. So visit hvmn.com and use the promo code CYCLIST at the checkout to save 20%. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by HVMN's Ketone IQ.